All right, welcome to Spring, everybody, and this is episode 41, Chromosomal Disorder. I am Dr. Christopher Pisano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Well, happy Spring, Yos. What up, man? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I guess the, the weather didn't get the memo that it's spring, but uh, okay, yeah, it's it's nice and it's cold. It's snowing out, here. nice yeah. snowy. Uh, <laughs> in Albany, there was a little flurry for spring, uh, so... Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, happy spring, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we, we'll stay clear of those chromosomal deletions that you're talking about so. there. Yeah, that sounds I like a, so, man. a good yeah, this topic. Is, this is cool. So, the obviously, the title, Chromosomal Disorder, and Yosef is talking about a deletion. So, we have uh, Dr. Arini Papapichu from the uh, Maya, Miami, this, look, my alma mater snuck into <laughs> yeah, my mind. Yeah, um, Miami's got a big basketball game coming up. I think that's why it's on uh-huh. my mind. Um, Mount Sinai, I can School of Medicine. And she's got a really cool study that they just published in Nature Biotech looking at how to model um, using human IPS uh, chromosome disorders that involve chromosomal deletions. And she has this cool new method um, where you can identify kind of where in that chromosome the phenotype comes from mm. uh, because you know a big chunk of this chromosome sometimes is deleted uh, and they're trying to identify where in that piece is the problem coming from and so Arini, i call her like the master of, of you know genetics she can manipulate genes and you know do these things she came up with this cool technique so we're going to have her on in a little bit she's going to uh, uh talk to us about uh, about the study in her lab i haven't I haven't spoken to her in a while so it'd be nice to speak with her again how you doing man I'm good over here. Uh, trying to avoid a cold over here. I don't know what's going on. I think it's the weather or something. But uh, so Do I. You may believe in that little... emergency stuff or no? Uh, you know those no, like I... vitamin C tabs. No, but I'll take it if it works. Yeah, I know. And that's the beauty of a cold. If yeah. you can come up with anything for a cold, if you told someone to stand upside down for like three days and then take a hammer to their head six times and the cold would go away, I guarantee they would do it. I would. Uh, I don't know about that hammer part. But <laughs> So uh, uh, yeah, besides I'm good. How are, how are things over there? Everything's all right, man. I, I'm going into. Uh, um, I have three grants that are going to be consecutively re- reviewed. I have a review in April, May, and June. So I'm either going to have a terrible start to summer or an incredible start to summer. So yeah. we should. Uh, everybody in my in the audience there, will you uh, say a grant prayer for me and <laughs> yeah. hope that hope one of them comes through. Nice. Um, so we are the uh, Stem Cell Podcast. Everybody knows that. And now we are, we have been the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR meeting. Um, again, you can check them out. Sorry, ISSCI.org. And the meeting is uh, quickly approaching. It's now April or would be April when this airs. So we got a couple months from Sweden. And uh, we're pretty pumped about that. Yo, are you excited to go out there? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll be interviewing there live on the floor of the conference. On the floor. So. Those are fun. Got yeah. a little different kind of buzz, you know, yeah. just grabbing people, pulling them aside. They're all confused. They don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> and we start asking them random questions. I think this year, Joseph and I have been more comfortable now doing the podcast for a while. I think we might ask a little more difficult questions. I like to put people on the spot. Get them sweaty a little bit. We'll see what the uh, we'll see what the uh, hot button topics are at the meeting, and 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 we'll talk about it. And speaking of which, we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in the in the roundup today about uh, this germline gene editing that's made all this news and is a little controversial. So uh, we'll get into that. Uh, so go to issr.org. You can still register for the meeting. Um, get on there, register, and go to Sweden. Uh, you go to the stem cell podcast.com. That's where we are. You can find all the episodes. Uh, you can sign up. A lot of people have been signing up. It's been great for our, uh, it's a newsletter. And what we do is after the episode airs, we'll send you one email and that email will contain the link to the episode 
and all of the links to the papers we discuss so that you have a centralized place to go access the, the papers if you want to see them. Uh, and there's also links to previous episodes. So it's a, it's a really good resource. Like Yosef always says, we don't spam or bother you. We just we send you one email after the show, and, and then that's it. So go to stemcellpodcast.com and register there. Um, I'll talk about next gen when I get to my piece, yo. So I think uh, we can get into the roundup that's sponsored by Thermo Fisher, who's been uh, great to the podcast um, and really helping us push this forward. Um, we talked with uh, Rhonda Newman a couple shows back. Um, they're going to be at Next Gen as well. You can go to their websites and go to our website. We have a banner to make it easy. Stemcellpodcast.com. Click on the banner for Thermo, and they'll take you to there and check out their products. Yeah, so, yo, it's my I'm, man. I'm Let's looking get into it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that CRISPR talk that they're going to give at the I know, me too. So, um, yeah, so, okay, let's start off with a PLOS one, the Public Library of Science one uh, study showing that C. elegans, you know, the worm, can detect cancer in people's urine. <laughs> This this day I wouldn't have believed it if it wasn't in Pilas. So uh what they did is they took drops of urine from a patient and when it's placed on a dish, uh the worm moves towards the cancer medium only. Mom. So yeah, and they knocked out the worm's olfactory sense neurons and so they stopped uh going towards the the cancerous urine. So uh they these these round worms have a a ninety six percent success rate get the hell out of here yeah no Wait, let me ask this question how does one figure that out that's a weird like you know like did you just pee and a little drop <laughs> yeah. and like it falls like you're trying yeah how does that work i'm not sure i i just you know i wouldn't have believed it if it wasn't in a peer review you, i would love to get the author of that on the show yeah talk about that what was the hypothesis going in there right right uh so and no that's matter what, what kind of year uh they tested nine types of cancers and uh the it was basically better than any blood test so uh you can find that wow. in PLOS one. Uh, there was a nature. Yep, there was a nature uh, study identifying a new autism-causing genetic variant. Um, they focused the authors of the study focused on thirteen families with more than one female uh, that had autism. And as you know, that you know females are m- less likely to get less autism, likely, yeah. but when they do, it's often more severe. So. Um, by focusing on families that have more than one female in it, they were able to pin down a gene called CTNND2 as the culprit. So uh, this gene plays a role in uh, brain development and uh, could, mm-hmm. you know, so CTNND2, to, to, it's time to add that to your, you know, panoply of uh, autism genes. Autism genes. Yeah, I know. So you can find that in nature. Um, Moving from nature to science, uh, there was a science paper showing that mutations in a gene called IRF7 can cripple one's defenses against the flu. This is uh, from the Casanova lab over at Rockefeller. You know, Fabian, our friends over there now, Uh, uh, he's actually on this paper. Uh, The gene is one of the control switches for type 1 and type 3 interferons. So IRF7. So they identified in a girl who had uh, a mutation in this gene. She almost died from the flu. And... um, is now she's healthy and uh, she she's getting the flu shots but it's curious that so far she since getting the flu sh- and almost dying from it she's hasn't been susceptible to other viruses um and that's kind of 
uncanny considering that mice that have a mutation in IRF7 usually succumb to viral infections. So um, maybe there's some compensatory wow. mechanism going on. But it's always they got cur- some cool things in that lab, man. Very cool. Yeah, and you know, just finding out like y- y- there was that HSV story uh, that they uh, uh-huh. published herpes simplex virus and encephalitis that they're they able to show like real life cases of these like you know it's it's you know obviously flu can affect older people a lot it kills what like 15,000 people a year some 50,000 it's something like that it's some insane number where you're like wow that many people die of flu every year and uh but for a young healthy girl that to to see something like that uh almost kill you from the flu you don't think that would uh take somebody out but they are able to uh, define this mutation that makes you susceptible. So maybe uh, get that screening from your doctor and during the flu season if uh, you suspect that you may have a, a susceptibility. Um, biological psychiatry study showing that a high-fat diet produces changes in uh, the health and behavior by changing the gut microbiome. So what they did is they took non-obese mice and they gave them a normal diet, but then they received a transplant of gut microbiota from donor mice that had been fed a high diet. So this is a microbiome-mediated uh, effect. And what they found was changes in these mice's, uh, in, in the mouse, uh, what they found was increased anxiety, impaired memory, and uh, repetitive behaviors, as well as increased intestinal permeability and markers of inflammation as well as inflammation in the brain so uh this you know high fat diet could affect so much more than just uh you know uh how fat you are but also like you know inflammation in the brain and your behavior and it was mediated by the gut microbiota so uh that i thought that was interesting you don't have to actually microbiota man yeah man there's more of them than us uh in each person so uh (laughs) I don't know if you saw this. I, I know people get upset when I, I cover space, but Mars Curiosity rover completed a full marathon over the past 11 years. It, it did 26.2 miles on the Martian surface. So I thought that wow. was cool. Yeah, congratulations to the Mars rover. Um, just sort of like non-peer-reviewed studies, I usually cover that, but I don't know if you saw during Apple's big announcement of the iWatch, they also announced a research kit for uh, diseases like Parkinson's disease. Uh, so they're uh, currently getting IRB approvals, and so far 37,000 people have signed up so far. But it's curious, like, so if you can monitor, you know, how they're able to monitor movements through the phone, if you could do that with, yeah. like, Parkinson's patients and obviously you have to trust that somebody who says they have parkinson's actually does and somebody who doesn't doesn't um but you know the the numbers that they're able to get for these studies are massive compared to in the past so uh it, it should be a, a new way of tracking people's you know progression of the disease or you know the effect of a intervention so uh this this could be a new way of doing research moving forward if uh, for clinicians. Um, so I thought that was a big announcement that didn't get much press, and very, so I want to highlight very that. Very cool. And one more non-peer-reviewed thing is George Church, the famous George Church, which you may bring up yep. later. He announced this uh, this month that he put the woolly mammoth DNA into elephant cells. It's not yet published, but they focused on genes related to... Uh, uh, the uh, cold weather, hair, 
ear, ear size and hemoglobin. So uh, he's he's putting those genes back into elephant cells. So we may revive the woolly mammoth someday. It's, uh, I, I you know I have faith in him in doing that. Um, Back to the peer-reviewed science, there was a current biology study finding that plastic in the, uh, finding plastic in the skin of both gamed and wild fish. Uh, these microplastics under one millimeter in size come from the breakdown of plastics via waves and sunlight and now microbeads that they're using in cosmetic products. Uh, so they were investigating a natural substance called chitin. Uh, they found uh, polystyrene instead and styrofoam entrapped in the skin of farmed Atlantic salmon and wild haddock and carp. So I don't particularly want to eat microplastics when I'm eating fish, but it's uh, something to be aware of. Uh, these things Dude, are yeah. Being, yeah, released into the I don't. Body. I don't mess with farmed fish, man. I don't. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of issues going on there. Uh, there was a current biology study showing that t- tolcapone, which uh, prolongs the effect of dopamine in the body, uh, in the brain primarily, increases compassion in people. So they used a simple economic game where participants divided money between themselves and an anonymous recipient. And after receiving the drug that increases dopamine, they uh, the participants divided money in a more with uh, strangers in a more egalitarian way than when uh, they received the placebo. So you can find that in current biology. And uh, just uh, finally, real quick, a journal of biological chemistry uh, showing a new f- uh, antibiotic that comes from a mushroom that grows on ho- uh, horse manure. Uh, this this uh, antibiotic is called copsin, and it's a protein, whereas most antibiotics are non-protein organic compounds, and it belongs to a group uh, called defensins. And it's vi- since it's a protein, it's it's very stable, and uh, you can boil it and it still uh, can kill listeria so using this fun fungi to kill bacteria using this derivative from fun fungi uh, they were able to uh, isolate copsin and uh, could be a new antibiotic moving forward in the future so i thought that was cool you can find that in jbc what's up going on manure man yeah i know a lot going on over I've- there yeah, is that like a is that like a, I guess manure is very rich, uh, so it can support growth of. Well, I know of peyote and things like that. You well, know, there's like regular a, shrooms. There's a lot of you know com- competition for resources there and the breakdown of materials. So the fungi are going against the bacteria, and so they they have this natural mechanism to to fight them off. So uh, it's sort of like you know how uh, penicillin was discovered is just like using natural mechanisms in the environment to uh, kill off. Uh, pathogens. So that's it for me. What about in urine? Well, so let's, I'm going to start here and I think this might morph into a discussion a bit. So I hope to get through some of these papers. There's been this like flurry of um, news, uh, press, scientific papers, not, 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 you know, primary research papers, but more forum or policy discussion papers on this whole idea of uh, germline gene editing. And I guess, um, Germline is the biologist kind of lingo for egg and sperm. Uh, so if you modify something germline, if you edit the DNA of the germ cells, egg and sperm, then you obviously will edit the embryo itself, right? So, you know, we, we talk about CRISPR, these technology where you can go in. We talked to uh, Dr. Alt last time. We're going to talk to Arini a bit. Um, right now, the technology exists that we can go in 
and if there's a mutation, we could fix it. Or if we wanted to change a DNA sequence, we can change it. Um, and that's great when you do it in somatic cells, you know, like a skin cell or something. But what, what, what happens if you go into a sperm cell and recreate, a, change the sequence, and then that sperm meets egg and fertilize, you can change the outcome of the embryo. So you can imagine for things like um, cystic fibrosis, when there's a where there's a known gene mutation, right, that if you can, so if some mom has this gene or something or the father and they know that the, that the child is going to get a high, high likely to have cystic fibrosis because they're going to inherit the bad gene, in the sperm you can fix the gene and then, you know, through in vitro um, fertilization you can create a, a baby from the parents without the mutation. So that seems great, right? Wow, that's awesome. However... You can uh, realize where this can go, and yeah, I you think, want that six foot tall baby with uh, yeah, no man, balding genes. You want that genes. six yeah. seven, you know, two twenty five <laughs> athletic baby, blue eyed. This is where the problems would would could come in. So this was a this was a featured story in the Technology Review, March fifth, by Antonio Reg- Regalado, I think Regalado. Which journal? And the title is. This was in the technology review. It's, it's just, okay. it's not, it's like a, it's a medium. It's not a, a primary uh, science paper. And it's called Engineering the Perfect Baby. Okay. And uh, the subtitle, Scientists are Developing Ways to Edit the DNA of Tomorrow's Children. Should they stop before it's too late? And in it, they talk to George Church, and they go into Harvard there, and they talk to a uh, postdoc in a lab, and they're getting an idea for where the technology is. And, you know, it said, um, you know, the fear really is that germline engineering is a path towards a dystopia of super people and designer babies for those who could afford it, all right? So this was the paper, and it talks about some pluses and minuses of the technology, and it gets into this, all right? Then on March 12th in Nature, there was a comment paper called Don't Edit the Human Germline, and the, the, the lead author is Edward Lamphere. So um, Edward uh, Lamphere is the CEO of a biotech company called Sangamo Biosciences, and they're his four of his colleagues. Mm-hmm. Basically, what they were saying was that scientists should agree not to modify the DNA of human reproductive cells at all. Like, just don't do it. He basically called for a, a gene editing moratorium. Nothing. Don't even mess around with it in the world of research because it, it can lead to, obviously, these kind of ethical problems. Oh, right? the scientific slippery slope. Right, so you know, you shouldn't even we shouldn't even go there yet in science. Let's just let's just wait, you know. And he called this word moratorium is the word I keep seeing, right? So then March nineteenth, in science, a policy forum, first author David Baltimore, who is a Nobel Prize winner, and there's another Nobel Prize winner on there. Also on this line is is um Jennifer Doudna, who's been involved in this CRISPR technology now for a while. I've emailed her. I've been having conversations with her by email. I asked her for some comments and some questions, but she hasn't gotten back to me yet. Um, so I hope maybe I can have them on the next episode. The title of this was A Prudent Path Forward for Genomic Engineering and Germline Gene Modification. And this, this took a little, you know, not as strong a stance as the previous one. Basically, what they were saying is that there needs to be, um, um, they should continue the research on it, right, which is important. Because we still need to understand it, um, and that we shouldn't, we should. They strongly discourage clinical applications right now. The way I read it, Yos did not really. It didn't say that they were calling for like a moratorium on all clinical use, like you should not do this. But they were saying they were urging caution. They were they were urging scientists to continue the research, and they were they were discouraging any clinical applications as of right now. 
Um, and so this is kind of a uh, you know a, a lighter hit. Then the ISSCR, the International Society for Stem Cell Research, came out on the same day, I believe, or um, the nineteenth. And they are calling for a, a, a moratorium on clinical use of germline genome editing. However, they did suggest and did say that research should be warranted, that we should be doing more research on it. Um, but they, they, they say you should not at all be doing anything clinical here. Interesting. So, I mean, I've, I've thought about this in the past with like Tay-Sachs. You know, it's this terrible disease that if it's in your family, you probably want to screen the embryos. If you're going to have a kid, you know, and you're of uh, Jewish descent, uh, I guess it's Ashkenazi Jew. If you have that in your family on both sides, you, you want to screen for that. I mean, the, it kills off babies by the age of two and it's a wasting disease. But where's the slippery slope? You know, how do you decide what genes, you know, what to, where do you draw the line? So exactly. So exactly. So so Paul Knopfler on his blog at ipsl.com had a post go up yesterday. You guys should go check it out. And the title is "Genetically Modified Humans Now Inevitable?" Question mark. And so what he's saying is like there are rumors swirling that there are four papers reporting the production of gene germ, germ you know genetic modified human embryos in various stages of high profile journals and review. Guarantee you, Yosef, at ISSCR this 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 summer the meeting this thing is going to be all over the place. We're going to hear talks about it, papers. I mean, this is going to be a major piece. And um, what what Paul was saying is that um, you know is it like is this just going to happen like? We're talking about it, but like, is this just inevitable? You know what I'm saying? Like, um, G- GFP it, human? Yeah, like, <laughs> Are we I mean, have like, glow in the dark. Humans? Interesting, like Paul said, for example, if they make in the US this GM baby, they call it, he calls it GM, gen, gen, you know, genetically modified baby, what could anyone do after the fact, right? Like, would the FDA take some sort of action? Uh, after the fact and isn't it too late because the baby's already made like what are they going to do kill the child yeah you know like what are they going to do like is it like um so it's an interesting debate so and i'm gonna put you on the spot but if you had the if you had the if someone came to you and like hey you know and you had the money money's not an issue and they were like yo dude we can we can make your kid like six foot five and whatever do you entertain that idea or For me, I guess, like, I probably wouldn't even want to know the sex, but maybe I would. I don't know. I'm kind of old school in that sense, but I, I, I feel like if, if you have something like Tay-Sachs in your family, you want to screen. I don't know about fixing the genome of said embryo, but, you know, to, to screen for, something like that that makes sense but to actually like i don't know make a gfp enhance the child's features or like a glow-in-the-dark human we don't need that but like (laughs) obviously uh you know i i think about this sometimes too because like say we knew the mutation that gave stephen hawkins his disease we would have screened out stephen hawkins he wouldn't have been born in the first place and we wouldn't have gotten all these great you know theories about black holes and you know it's just like what's the cost of screening out people with diseases that we are now yeah. increasingly identifying. We could be getting rid of the next Einstein or Mozart right. because they didn't have the gene. You know, they had a, a gene that would cause Alzheimer's early on or something like that. But, you know, while they were alive, they created the most brilliant play mankind's ever seen or whatever, just music. You name it. Uh, what's the cost of pulling these people out? Of I, 
I, society. You know, I'm dude. I, I see both sides. I mean, I, I have, you know, when you talk about kids suffering from disease, and you tell me that you have a way to correct the gene so that the kid won't suffer and he'd be healthy, I I listen. I say that's awesome. However, we just don't know enough to know what the hell else happens when you go in and manipulate that gene. Yeah, sure, you might correct that gene, but what what does that do? What does that process do? Uh, you know, we talked to you know Dr. Alt about off-target effects. Those aren't perfect yet. I mean, so there's a lot of collateral damage that could be there. There's, like you said, does it alter? Is it, you know, I, I don't know. Some people think that just because you change one gene and that's one protein, you don't affect the overall aura or being of the human, but you don't know that, right? I mean, you, you don't know, like you said, like if someone is going to, someone's going to be going through some sort of uh, disease suffering, that changes the course of their life, right? And if you fix that, they won't be who they'll be. So you get into these philosophical discussions. So I don't know, man. I don't know where I stand. I, on. Mean, I definitely it, don't think we should halt the research on it. it That's it, for sure. I mean, we should encourage people to do research on it right now. That's for sure. I mean, opinion. is this an issue? Are people trying to fix genes in their, you know, uh, candidate embryos? I, I thought it was just sort of like people are screening uh, you know, if you do an in vitro fertilization, people are screening for known diseases. And, you know, say you have eight fertilized embryos, you can say, okay, this one does not have Tay-Sachs and pick, I don't know, 10 or 20 or 50 childhood diseases that are just terrible, like battens or whatever. And screening, I could see as not being controversial, but actually fixing why do you have to focus on this one embryo out of a and say okay we're gonna fix that one when there's four other healthy ones i i mean screening seems to be prudent whereas this manipulation who's doing it unless they want to make a glow-in-the-dark human I, I, don't I mean i think what they're saying is like if you have if you know if you have like this dominant dis- dis- disease in your family and both your parents have this mutation and you know that your child is going to inherit it and get the disease that they could, they could, in theory, correct the mutation germline so they can correct the sperm in vitro, correct the egg or whatever in vitro, and then combine them to make a normal uh, baby, if you will. And when I mean normal, I mean in terms of that gene. So that, 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 that's, what they're, that's what they're saying. Like, and I think they keep using like, these like cystic fibrosis, that CFDR gene as an yeah. example. You can just correct it germline, yeah. and then you don't have to worry about the kid getting the disease because it's fixed. I mean, yeah. that, this is the idea, I guess. Uh, I guess I'm on the pro screening side of things and uh, not necessarily uh, fixing the, the yeah, germline Yeah, I hear you. I'm for research. Just let the research continue. I don't, I don't, I'm not for this being done in humans currently as we speak, but uh, we could, w- let's move on from it. I just want to get to a couple papers. It's a, it's a very interesting uh, thing, you know, point of discussion. I would love to hear the, our audience's take on this. Please, you know, you know, send us some emails, Twitter on Facebook, or 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 just uh, you can go on to the stemcellpodcast.com and leave us a um, a message on our website. Just click that little red button on the side, and just tell us your take, and we'll be happy to share it on the next show. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, real quick, dude, I just want to get into two things. They're doing a double. So Nature published. They're doing a double blind peer review now. Did you see this? So starting this month, Nature Biotech, along with together with Nature and its sister journals, is now offering an a not anonymity to authors during peer review so traditionally the authors the reviewers know who the author is but the author does not know who the reviewers is reviewers are now i could submit my paper to nature and not allow them to see my name 
That's cool. Um, so it, it's completely non-biased. They can't they can't select publication based on who the author is. They're going to try that out and see how it goes. Um, there was. Did you know that celebrities are getting stem cell facial treatments from sheep placenta? I, I heard about this. That sounds so funny. Okay, what's what's uh, the deal with no, that? No, I'm just saying. They, 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 I'm just going through quick now. <laughs> that that that. that line was you gotta be kidding which i thought oh, was kind of creative man, that's um and so like i guess there are people like really high profile um um you know uh let's see kim kardashian simon cowell these people are fans of ovine embryonics to get sheep uh stem cells rubbed all over their face oh, um they were able to coax stem cells to form 3d mini lungs uh this is a publication in e-life um this is out of the university of Mich- michigan medical school i'm just going to do highlights and you can go read them online ucsf finds keys finds a new key to making neurons from stem cells it's called pinky a non-coding rna that's found in brain stem cells and they think that has broad range of clinical applications and um let's see here um i think that's it man let's not overdo it um we're going to now get into uh the guests for the show and so we can get into chromosome deletions okay chris why don't you bring on our guest all right, man. Thanks, yo. So um, it's it's good to um, I'm looking through Skype and looking at her now. Um, we're we're re-recording. We had some technical issues before. I haven't seen Arini in a while, and now I get to see her a lot today. So I'm going to reintroduce uh, Dr. Arini Papapetru from the Mount Sinai or now the ICANN School of Medicine. So let me quickly give her a couple sentences. Uh, Arini earned her medical and doctoral degrees from the University of Petras in Greece. And then where we crossed paths was at Memorial Sloan Kettering, where she did her postdoc from the Shell Satellite, um, where they um, really w- developed some of the first disease and cell gene therapy models using human iPS cells. 2012, she went across the country out west, University of Washington, and then now is back on the East Coast, uh, I think since 2014. Um, and she's an associate professor of oncological sciences. And welcome, Arini, to the Stem Cell Podcast. Hi, it's, um, it's, uh, thank you very much for having me here. It's, uh, it's great to see you um, again, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. So let's, let's uh, first start, um, tell you know, a few minutes, give a little background, uh, tell everybody about um, you know, your, your, your focus, your, your research focus, and kind of how you got into the world of stem cells and into your research. Right. So, so the main focus of my lab is using uh, isogenic human pluripotent stem cell models to study the genetics of human disease, and we're particularly interested in blood diseases. And um, even more uh, particularly, we're focusing on a disease of the blood that is called mild dysplastic syndrome, or MDS. Um, so I trained as... Um, uh, as a hematologist, uh, as a clinical hematologist, and, and then subsequently at Sloan Kettering in genetic engineering of uh, human hematopoietic and pluripotent stem cells. And so when IPS cells, um, uh, IPS cell technologies came, I was fortunate to be um, at a good time and at a good place where uh, we could very quickly implement these technologies. And then starting my lab, I I really wanted to put these technologies in use in studying um, the, you know, the biology of, of blood diseases and trying to understand better um, the mechanisms of disease and try to help with um, um, developing new, new treatments. So there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of things to, to to talk about. I guess a lot of places to go. So 
Why don't we we start? We're going to talk about the the paper that was recently published. Congratulations, by the way, Nature Biotech. So why why don't we um, why don't we start there? So you you know you left your postdoc, um, starting your lab. So so let's get a little bit into how you got mm-hmm. studying into these you know chromosomal deletions and so forth and things like this. Right. So so the paper is about. Um, uh, basically how we can study chromosomal deletions, particularly hemizygous chromosomal deletions, meaning one, one copy of a chromosome missing, uh, that are associated with um, human diseases. And the, the way we became interested in this is because in the lab we were developing IPS models of um, this disease that I mentioned before, myodysplastic syndrome or MDS. And um, these diseases are actually um, characterized uh, by specific chromosomal deletions um, that are acquired by the human robotic stem cell clone that is basically responsible for this disease. And so so we uh, focused on one of these deletions, which is the deletion of chromosome 7Q, and um, that is a typical uh, chromosomal abnormality in MDS and actually one that is um, associated with poor prognosis MDS. So we wanted to um, study it and then model it in human pluripotent stem cells. And so by doing this, we actually uh, developed some tools and some strategies that can be more broadly applicable to the study of chromosomal deletions that are associated with cancer, but also uh, more and more now with diseases um, such as uh, the so-called neurodevelopmental diseases such as autism and schizophrenia that you guys may be more interested in. Um, so very briefly, basically what we did in the paper was uh, that we used both reprogramming um, patient cells to derive IPS cells with deletions as well as chromosome engineering strategies to engineer these deletions now in normal cells and then compare these um, to um, understand the phenotypes and the consequences of deletion in um, the cellular phenotypes and in the function of the cells and then go from there to define a region on chromosome 7Q where we can functionally map these phenotypes and further then test for um, do a, a functional screen for genes within this region uh, to prioritize some that are um, we believe are likely to be implicated in this disease. So in MDS, we should maybe back up and talk about what the, you know, how the disease presents itself in patients uh, before we go to the in vitro results. Um, so can you just sure. give a little background? This, uh, this is a blood disease that leads to cancer, essentially, in adults or... Um. So, so, so it is a disease. So sporadic MDS is typically um, present in adults and actually in adults of like advanced age, typically in the uh, sixth or seventh decade of life. And although there's some uh, forms that are, appear earlier and also some rare inherited forms and predisposition syndromes. But, but um, since it's sporadic MDS, basically, it's actually very interesting and, and sort of mysterious disease. We really understand very little about it. And what happens is basically you have clonal hematopoiesis, meaning that you have only one clone, one hematopoietic stem cell clone in the marrow that kind of takes over and expands that for reasons we don't understand. Um, it is, however, um, defective and fit in its ability to make blood. So the patients have actually 
what we call peripheral blood cytopenias, meaning that they have reduced numbers of cells of mature lineages in their, in their blood. Um, so they have anemia, they have neutropenia, and so increased risk of infections. They have thrombocytopenia, so increased risk of bleeding. And um, as you said, some in some of those cases, they progress to acute leukemia. So this clone now acquires additional events and, and becomes fully transformed. And then um, you have acute myeloid leukemia. And, and importantly, when you have acute myeloid leukemia after MDS, as opposed to de novo um, acute myeloid leukemia, this leukemia is actually very um, a, a very bad leukemia, nasty disease. You don't... Uh, doesn't respond to um, treatment very well, and usually the prognosis is dismal. So we talked about this before, that there's a seeming uh, paradox where uh, the, the, what you observed in vitro with these IPS lines is that with the deletion, you see uh, decreased proliferation and uh, less colony formation. Uh, was this known before with the patients uh, before? And then uh, from there, going on, just talk about how there's just this strange paradox where it goes from a decreased proliferation to leukemia, which would be the increased proliferation of blood cells. Right. So so this is sort of a paradox that, that often people discuss with regards to MDS, where you basically have a, a disease with certain hyperproliferative features sort of preceding a, uh, a disease like, like a leukemia where you have obviously um, hyperproliferation and um, um, basically a fully transformed cell. Um, so this is something we really don't understand. Um, and, and what happens basically in terms of the model, our model and how, how it sort of recapitulates this, um, it actually does, we think, very well because... We know that um, primary cells from, from the bone marrow patients with MDS, when we take them, we culture them ex vivo, um, they grow very poorly, they make very few colonies, um, they differentiate if you push, push them down along different lineages in vitro, they differentiate very, very uh, poorly compared to normal cells. And this is actually what we also see in our IPS cell-derived hematopoietic cells that we make um, uh, from the MDS cells. So that was known beforehand with the patient's own uh, uh, chromosomal disordered uh, so, stem cell, uh, hematopoietic stem cells? That was known before? So, so no. So the chromosomal deletions, we really cannot. So, so the problem with studying um, MDS with patient cells, uh, primary patient cells cultured ex vivo, is that um, in these patients, you have, as I mentioned, this clone, this MDS clone, but you also have normal cells that coexist. And you also sometimes now more and more we realize that you also have more clones and subclones at different stages of um, so-called clonal progression. I see. Um, so basically, when you take cells, primary cells, and you culture them ex vivo, what you have is a mixed bag of cells. And it's very hard to really... Uh, and, and of course, then with culture, you select sometimes for... A specific, you know, uh, with for normal cells or for like um, a specific clone. So it's very hard to do any really um, uh, controlled and, and really informative studies with uh, patients. This is one of the main reasons that we um, uh, wanted to develop an IPS model. This, you know, a very 
controlled and defined system to ask um, questions about the phenotypic and functional consequences of specific um, chromosome deletions or genetic mutations, and we can expand it to like study uh, all sorts of different um, aspects of genetics that are associated with MDS and with other diseases more generally, of course. So now you so you're able to make the lines from patients, and you you're able to I mean, I mean in the world of disease modeling and, and with IPS, making the lines and then getting a phen- you know recapitulating a phenotype is is the first uh, bridge, I guess you should say, you know, and and I know a lot of people out there trying to model disease can make the lines, and then they they some you know especially in the neural world with neurons and aging neurodegenerative disease, we sometimes really don't see a lot of uh, phenotypes. So you're able to get a phenotype. And so now, in the paper, you then went to explore the deletion aspect, right, to try to figure out um, what piece of that, you know, piece of the DNA or the chromosome or the genetic material that actually is contributing to the phenotype. So why don't you explain a little, I think this is a very cool approach, why don't you explain to everybody how you, how, how you guys did that? So, yeah, so Chris, that's very well actually, um, very well said, very well described. Um, we... Um, um, basically, what we did, as you said, is we found delish- we found um, disease phenotypes that we could attribute to, the, to um, the MDS by comparing the MDS IPSCs versus the uh, normal IPSCs that were importantly isogenic, so they were also made from the same patients from normal cells. Um, and and then we asked, well, which of those phenotypes we can attribute to the deletion? And so by doing this, we um, uh, we found that the uh, phenotype that we consider to be the sort of in vitro equivalent of the in vivo ineffective hematopoiesis phenotype, which is a reduced production of reduced potential for producing CD45 positive hematopoiesis cells, um, was due to loss of chromosome 7Q because we could recapitulate it by deleting the chromosome 7Q in normal cells. And so then we went on and tested clones that had partial deletions, and then we found that actually some of them were doing okay. They still could make blood and they didn't care, and others that had deletions in other parts had um, they, they could reproduce the phenotype. So, so by putting all these together and putting together, you know, the different clones in different um, regions, we could sort of pinpoint a region where we could functionally map the phenotype too. So yeah, talk about that. So you're going around chopping around the the, the chromosome seven and just yeah. sort of uh, talk about how you chop it up. Are you using CRISPR yeah. or is this uh, what, what's going on there? So so uh, first of all, I think that's isn't that so cool? Like you know, so imagine cool. that you know, like you know, these are kind of things that we could do in model organisms, and now it's kind of almost amazing to me that we can do this in human cells. Uh, but um, so so basically, what we used, and now we have more and more tools in the lab to do that. Basically, now my lab is obsessed by with making chromosomal deletions. Everybody's like wants to, 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 to cut chromosomes. Uh, but uh, for for the, the experience of the paper, we kind of used a um, a modified Cree-Loxby strategy where we we have two steps. In one step, we um, uh, target a chromosome loss cassette. This is kind of what I call it, chromosome loss cassette. That's um, a cassette that we um, 
uh, generate that has two inverted logs besides, so two logs besides facing each other, um, and a positive and negative selection marking. We target it in chromosome 7Q so that then we can induce recombination with uh, pre-recombinase uh, between sister chromatids, and that then results in complex rearrangements uh, that we think then get resolved with deletions that we that are rare. However, we can select them because we have this negative selection marker, which is HSVTK, so we can select them with cyclovir. And um, since then, we've used other strategies too. We can use, of course, like the classic Crelox um, um, recombination to induce deletions, but that involves, as you, perhaps you can imagine, one additional step, so it's basically three steps. It's a very long uh, process. Uh, but now, more recently, we more and more use CRISPR to do that uh, because it's not necessarily for the purpose of deletions much more efficient than CRELOX, but it's actually, it allows us to... Um, to generate deletions in a much more defined way. Um, and I think that, you know, with improved tools, it's going to become also more and more efficient. So we're actually increasingly using CRISPR. And we can um, uh, use one or more than one guide RNAs at the same time to create both terminal deletions and interstitial deletions. So it's, it's um, um, we can do it for other chromosomes. So basically, as I said, you know, with so, uh, uh, so essentially, it wasn't known which part of the, the chromosome seven was causing this uh, MDS, the myeloid dysplastic right. syndrome. So uh, you were basically chopping away, and then you were able to isolate the region that recapitulated the uh, aspects of, of the disease, which Correct. was uh, the, I guess, at the initial stages, the hypo proliferation, and then did you actually see the hyper? After a while, or is that something that, so that, that is, ne- never happened? So that is something that actually MDS is not uh, yet a leukemia, right? Okay. So, so in order to, to well, we have other products in the lab where we actually have leukemia IPSs, and in these guys, we do see actually the opposite. Um, well, not exactly the opposite. They, they stick on the gland, but they have a higher, like, um, uh, rate of proliferation at both undifferentiated state and also as EBs, embryoid bodies. Um, but so, but let's just not go there. But um, <laughs> because that makes it uh, uh, much more complicated. Um, uh, and um, uh, yeah, basically, MDS is not yet a leukemia, so that's what we expected to find, and that's what we find. Yeah, I'm thinking. You know, for me, for the um now I'm thinking in terms of my own stuff. You know, a lot of people when modeling IPS, in the, especially in the world of autism, they, they try to do these, you know, uh, very penetrant, syndromic forms of disease um, just to see if they can try to recapitulate phenotypes. But often that is a chromosomal, you know, deletion, you know, and the patients aren't necessarily, they're not autism patients but one of their you know one of their phenotypes is that they're autistic or have autistic like traits so it's always a caveat that when you're deleting this piece of chromosome that you're going to have a lot of other things going on so if we can if we know the phenotype in the dish associated with autism whether it's a synapse or something like this if we were to employ this technology we might be able to identify where in the deletion 
and where in that piece is causing the autistic trait of the of the syndrome. So I'm I'm like seeing where these kind of applications might for this and, kind of technology could go. It's very cool. And finally, uh, just talk about the rescue. You guys were able to rescue uh, the the phenotype you were seeing in vitro. Uh, talk about that real quick. Yeah. So then, basically, we use this as as a way to to go from defining a region, then to go and try to identify specific genes within that region that are that are important and. Generally, one of the questions that we also addressed was, okay, when you have a deletion, you know, a deletion may cause a disease phenotype, especially in cancer situations, by either by a reduced dosage mechanism, right, where you have, like, now um, reduced dosage uh, instead of two copies, one copy of, of um, the, all the genetic material that is included in the deletion, or it can sort of provide a second hit where you have inactivated some genes already in the intact allele by other mechanisms, and then, you know, the deletion sort of results in complete loss of function. So what we found was actually in our case that the, the, the data that we uh, had suggested that this deletion causes a, a reduced dosage, it's a dosage effect. And so then we went on and tried to find haplin-sufficient genes on the chromosome 7Q, so genes that would be um, uh, whose haplin sufficiency, so whose uh, reduced expression might reproduce this phenotype. And we did this by doing the opposite. We were trying to rescue the phenotype by putting back these genes. So, um, so, so we screened a, a, a library of 60-something candidate genes on chromosome 72, candidate haplin sufficient genes, and we found um, uh, four candidates that could rescue uh, partially the phenotype, and we think uh, that very likely it is a combination of more than one genes um, that um, uh, are needed to rescue completely. Excellent, excellent. excellent. And, and so one of those genes is EZH2, is that correct? That's correct. So uh, that's going to ring a lot of bells for, for people involved yeah. with uh, uh, all sorts of stuff from oligodendrocytes to blood, I guess. That's right. I mean, EZH2 is also, like in MDS, one of the sort of um, um, usual suspect genes. It's a gene that, so, so this is one of the cool things that we found in this um, uh, screen, you know, EZH2, that is sort of like the gene that um, if you were to say, oh, you know, what's your best guess gene on 7 q it would be EZH2 most likely. Um, just because it's a gene that is very also uh, commonly found inactivated by mutation in MDS. Yeah. And, and so that was uh, actually, uh, I was very happy to see that this came up in our um, uh, screen as a hit. All right. Well, uh, everybody check out the paper. It's in Nature Biotech. The first author is Cotini with a K. And uh, the last author is our guest, Irini Papa Petru. Did I say that correct? I didn't mangle that did i i, I gotta work on my greek i guess so <laughs> <laughs> and uh i my plug arini will be a speaker at the next gen conference in saratoga in may so we will see uh we'll see you again in may and we will talk science and we will have a few drinks and relax next time and uh to me everybody register now and come meet arini and talk to her face to face thank you so much uh for doing this arini i appreciate it thanks very much and i look forward to seeing you guys in saratoga all right. All right, have a good night. Ciao. Bye. Bye-bye.
Okay, so there you have it, chromosomal deletions or disorders. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool, man. That was a cool technique to, to do that because sometimes these chromosome deletions can be very large. So it's nice to have a way or a method that will allow us to you know figure out where in that big chunk the yeah. phenotype actually comes from. So that's very cool. Um, let's see. So this is a good time for me to mention. So I mentioned just bef- just as we got off with Irene, she'll be speaking at NextGen. So there's still time to register. You can register all the way up to the meeting, May 1st. The re- people are starting to fill up. You can go to nextgenstemcell.com. Um, we're going to be there. The podcast will be there. I'll be there. You'll also be there. And we got a good lineup. You can use podcasts as a uh, promo code and get a discount off registration. Um, hurry up and register now. I know hotel rooms are moving too pretty quick. So go nextgenstemcell.com for uh, registration. Yo, so we're going to rant, right? Yeah, yeah. I just, I, since this was kind of a very science heavy uh, interview, I want to rant about something that everybody can relate to. Um, and that is the, the office fridge or, you know, the common fridge and people stealing people's food out of the common fridge. And I'm, I'm just wondering, does that happen to you guys a lot? I, I know it happens, you know, not just in science, but, uh, people just, taking food out of the fridge or you know when people come back from trips uh they'll bring back chocolate or something from italy wherever they were and leave it out for the lab to have and then like everybody on that floor is just just tearing it up so, dude it's the worst yeah. it's, it's 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 a really bad situation in fact I, f- I think i've read like they're like these you can go like google image it and they have do's and don'ts of the office refrigerator and this is like a big deal there's two problems in my opinion number one uh, people steal your food. That's the first problem. Like, you know, what's the worst, like salad dressing. So like bring a salad in and I have my salad dressing in there. I put my initials on it, which mean nothing. And, um, you'll notice that, that like, it'll go down. It'll be less and less and less and less. And I'm not using it, you know, yeah. like they're using it. I, I particularly once, cause I'm a crazy scientist. I bought like a bogey bottle and I, and I wasn't using it. And I wanted to see, like, if it actually went down because I never used it. And it went, like, halfway down. I've never used it. So I I definitively know that someone was using my salad dressing. Um, The other part of it that's a problem is that people leave crap in there forever. Yeah, I think that's a huge problem. We used to have it. There was one uh, that when you opened up the door, the wafty, the smell that came out of that fridge. It's now clean, but there was a point where there there was like a new species of mold growing in there. I, it, it was disgusting. You couldn't. It would just stink up the whole floor as soon as you opened it. I feel like bats would fly out when you when you open this fridge. <laughs> it was just horrible. So yeah, there's there's sort of like the the it's, le- it's pretty bad. Food being left over, I I don't know what you can do besides you know with the stealing part, putting a camera on, on the fridge, you know, monitoring the fridge, and then for leaving the food in, I I don't know how you really police that, but. dude. I I don't know, but you know, um, the other problem is like, so it's a lot of times there's only like limited space, right? This is a real big frustration. If you get in late, you know, if you get like there are ten. You got nowhere to put your lunch, man. Yeah. I, I, it's like you're, you're trying to like force it in a corner or like move things around or like put, and then like then someone will take yours out and move it into the back. So then when I go to eat, I can't find my friggin' lunch. <laughs> it's just like there's no good, there's no good mechanism. Um, what do you think a good cutoff is before you have to get your stuff out of the fridge? Like, 
Uh, Pat, how many days you can throw it out? Yeah, I feel like there should be a, t- a tissue purge every month, every week. <laughs> just every get rid week, of, right? just clean the whole thing out. I mean, we really don't need that uh, that 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 sandwich from two months ago in there festering about. So yeah, no man, it's got mold on it. It's pretty <laughs> nasty. Like I, I, so, I think everybody out there can appreciate this. First off, make sure sure put your in the fridge transient. In other words, it goes in, you eat it, it's gone. Don't leave, leave things to fester. Don't take people's food and don't mess with anyone's salad dressing. Yeah, We're hot about the salad dressing, man. <laughs> yeah, you are. What, what what kind of salad dressing you got there? Some uh, some Caesar. Some I got ranch? a little Newman's. I got a little Newman's uh, light Italian. You know, oh, it's okay. uh. I like my Newmans, and it's in a nice glass bottle, and it has my F initials right on the front. Stop it has your initials. You, you put your initials. You put your initials on your salad dressing. That's great. <laughs> I have. To, apparently, I have to. Well, we used to do this when I was in the lab. Yosef knows this. When we were in the lab, we do it with growth factors in the fridge. It's the same idea. Yeah. You guys all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And we would have to sometimes in media. We would make bogey labels. We would make labels like Dumby or like you know. <laughs> purple dream or something like <laughs> yeah, that yeah. so so people wouldn't actually know what was in it so they couldn't use it but with yeah. with, with with salad dressing i can't do that because people just know it's salad dressing yeah you got paul newman staring at you so i didn't i didn't know you you had to do that that's pretty funny though so i'll stay away from your salad dressing in the future don't touch my dressing <laughs> all right so on that note right, let's man, end it there that, everyone yeah we'll be out see you guys on episode 42 have a good couple weeks all right talk to you later